Hello and welcome to Connect Points podcast and sermon archives. If you'd like to learn more about our church, please go online to our website at connectpointupc.com or follow us on our Facebook page. Thank you very much and I hope you enjoy this week's message. God bless. to begin a study of the book of Amos tonight, and uh, we'll see, we'll just kind of take it as we go. It might be uh, maybe like a three-part study, or it may take us a little bit more to get into it. Amen. But how many know that there's power in the Word of God? There, there is power in just studying the Word of God. Amen. You really don't have to do anything else to it for it to be powerful. It is the Word of God. It's powerful all by itself. Amen. And so just studying it and looking at it and learning about it, all of these things are beneficial to us in our walk with God. And they, I promise you that as you study the Word of God, uh, you are going to gain insight and knowledge. How I many know oh, that's true? Gain insight and knowledge that helps us every day. Amen. It helps us uh, on, a, on a routine basis. And so we're going to look here at the book of Amos for, for, we'll see, for maybe a few Wednesday nights, and uh, we'll see how it goes. But we, we get into the book right off of the beginning, and it begins in an interesting way. The first words of the book are an introduction to the man himself. It's like he's, uh, he wants us to know, he, he needs us to understand who he is, that's going to become part of the story, and where he lives, it's going to become part of the story. And, and, and he is giving us this introduction to himself as a man, uh, of, as a man and then also as a man used of, of, by God. And there's an eye on who he was and insight into his life when he says, the words of Amos, who was among the herdmen of Tekoa, which, which he saw concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, the king of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. Now, that's a little intriguing right off the bat, isn't it? <laughs> it's like, this is who I am, this is where I'm from, and this, what I'm telling you, uh, this was recorded two years before the earthquake. Well, all right, let's talk about that a little bit, and, uh, and, and we'll get there. Okay, uh, but the, this is an era when we have the division uh, be, of God's uh, chosen nation, His chosen people. There's this division of Judah and Israel. And Amos lived near the border of this divided nation in Tekoa in Judah. He lived what was somewhat close to where this this border that man created that God did not create, right? This division of the tribes and then now two nations that comes about because of people's uh, sinfulness and their lack of hunger for God. And this is what man does. We just kind of like do stuff that doesn't make any sense. Somebody say amen. All right, we're all in agreement on that, right? Amen. And so here it is now. And so he lives near where this border is, is at. And this is, uh, uh, he, he was, as we find later in a book, he is a herdsman and what you might consider kind of a fig tree uh, a farmer. Amos 7, 14 and 15, then answered Amos and said to Amaziah, I was no prophet, neither was I a prophet's son, but I was a herdman and a gatherer of sycamore fruit. 
And the Lord took me as I followed the flock, and the Lord said unto me, Go. Everybody say, Go. The Lord said unto me, Go, prophesy unto my people Israel. Amen. And so this is, you may have heard people say before, I'm neither a prophet or a son of a prophet. Uh, and then they go ahead and, and, and say stuff anyway, right? <laughs> I'm not a prophet or a son of a prophet, but you need to do this. Um, and sometimes that's just kind of a, a, a little bit of an escape, an out that people use to not commit themselves too strongly. But this, the Amos is really telling us. He's saying, look, I, I, I'm, I wasn't a prophet. I wasn't even the son of a prophet. But God came into my life. And he said, go. Amen. How many think that's a beautiful thing, the simplicity of what it means for God to use somebody? Amen. It doesn't have to be that complicated. And so here he is, and, and we see that he is chosen of God. And if he is chosen of God, we also see that he is qualified by God. Somebody say chosen. And say qualified. Amen. So it, it's not about his, his pedigree. It's not about his social status. Uh, there's some different points of view on what his social status was. Sometimes when the Bible mentions a herdsman, uh, it mentions it in, the, in, in as it implies to a very wealthy person. Uh, but there's also a way to be a herdsman that is not wealthy at all. Uh, when you throw in the, the fig tree work, uh, that was something that was uh, more on the, the, the lower end of the spectrum as far as financial uh, equity is concerned. And so there's a good chance that he was not a person of any well means. We already know uh, that he doesn't have any specific pedigree uh, that comes along with who he is or his name, but he is still, amen, God called and God chosen. And when you are God called and God chosen, you will be God empowered. Oh, hallelujah. Somebody say, thank God for that. Amen. This is one of the areas that people struggle with the most is because in our human nature, there are things that matter to us. They matter uh, uh, in in human thinking, in human perspective, but they do not matter to God. Amen. We think sometimes we get in this trap that it matters. It matters who my father was. It matters who my mother was. It matters how many generations there are uh, in apostolic. It matters uh, what my job is, how much money I make. Uh, and, 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 you know, really the only thing that matters about how much money you make is whether you can buy, amen, the small milkshake or the large milkshake. Because it doesn't matter to God. In fact, I would go as far as to say this. It doesn't make God any better if I make more money. It doesn't bring any more glory to God if I'm rich. First of all, there's nothing I can do to bring God more glory. He is God all by himself. Amen? Amen. So everything we do for God is really things that we are doing, amen, unto the God who is, is, is helping us, who's returning and blessing and strengthening and empowering us. And so here we have this man, Amos, who says, look, I'm just this guy, and I was just doing my life, and I was just trying to get by, but God showed up and said, go. Oh, hallelujah. Amen. So God called, God chose, and God empowered. The timeline is clear. It's very clear for the, the book of Amos because it's based upon some very things that are very easy to find in history. Uh, it's based upon the leaders of the day, Uzziah. 
and Jeroboam. These are, the, these are the great leaders of the day. There is also a mention of an earthquake that he says will happen two years later, which we'll talk about. And then, so we, we, we looking at this timetable, we see that this was uh, pinpointed to the years 765 to 755 BC, okay? So this is the history, the map of where Amos falls in. That's good. That's good for you and I. That's good for Bible-believing people. It's good because they keep trying to tell us the Bible isn't right. They keep trying to tell us that it's, gonna, it's proven wrong. They keep trying to tell us that stuff never happened. But when we have these pinpoint historical accuracy stuff, and then they continue to see their, and find things that match up with that, amen, that's good for people who believe in the Word of God. Don't you think that's good? So we like it. We like it when the Bible says these very specific things. And so Jeroboam is leading the people uh, uh, of Israel in, in a, it is a very prosperous time, actually. In fact, this is, the, this is kind of the pinnacle of prosperity from a human point of view. For, for Israel, uh, it's uh, the pinnacle. It's very prosperous. They've got a lot of things that they've conquered. They've got a lot of people that they're, they've made their dealings with. They've got a lot of money flowing. Everything is going uh, really good in the human perspective. But it's not a positive time at all when it comes to the God perspective. Amen. His, his wonderful people have divided themselves. Idolatry is running rampant. They keep adding more gods that they can worship and bow down to, and Amos will get into that later. And and all of this is happening with corrupt, sinful leadership. And so we need to understand something about what the Bible is showing us here, that prosperity does not automatically speak of the blessings of God. It's not an automatic thing to say, well, they've got, everything's going well. Everybody's making more money. The economy's going great. The job market's wonderful. That is not automatically a sign that God is pleased. Amen? I mean, I don't know, kind of feels a little bit like our world today. No matter where you fall on the political spectrum, There's a lot of wonderful things happening with the human economy. There's a lot of good things. The jobs is phenomenal with the jobs. But we don't live in a society that is closer to God today than they were last year. Our society is not closer to God today than they were 20 years ago or 100 years ago. We're farther from God. We've got more idols than we've ever had. Am I right? Amen. And so... We need to understand that, that we don't get stuck in that way of thinking. They had become an idol-worshiping people. They had neglected righteousness and justice. Everybody say righteousness and justice. These are two themes that you're going to find throughout the book of Amos. These are two things about God that he wants in his people. They are things that are definite characteristics of our God. He is a righteous God. Amen? And he is a just God. And his righteousness and his justice are not to be questioned. You cannot call them into question. He is the epitome. He is the example of righteousness and justice. But he looks for righteousness and justice in those who would call him God, who would serve him as God. 
So he looks for that, and so this becomes, amen, one of the underlying themes of the book of Amos. So he says, these are the words which Amos saw. Verse 1 still. Everybody see it? Verse 1, chapter 1. Which he saw concerning Israel. This is an interesting point for us to consider. How do we see words? How do you see words? What does it mean by when it says these are the words by which Amos saw? The New Testament would say it like this when 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled of what? The word of life. So they said, we, we saw it, we saw him, we, we put our hands on him, we heard, amen, but what was it that we were seeing and hearing? It was the word of life. Everybody see it? The word, look at it, capital W-O-R-D, amen. So this is not saying that these were words of life. This is saying he was the word. In the beginning was the word, right? And the word did what? Became what? Flesh and dwelt among us. And so there was the word that spoke, the word that spoke light into darkness and created all these things. And so he's talking here about being able to see words for the life was manifested and we have seen it and bear witness and show unto you that eternal life still in 1 John 1, which, with, which was with the Father and was manifested unto us, that which we have seen and heard declare we unto you. We didn't just see it, we also heard it. And because we saw it and we heard it, they say we declare it. Oh, hallelujah. Amen. Let me, let me just pull that. Let me just give you a little illustrative reference of that in, in, in our context. Amen. I believe that people can be filled with the gift of the Holy Ghost speaking with other tongues. I believe it because it's in the Word. I read the Word of God, and I see in the Word of God it, those words come off of those pages and into my heart. I read it. We read it from the pulpit. We hear people talk about it. But that's not the only reason I believe that somebody can be filled with the gift of the Holy Ghost. I also know because I have seen it, I have witnessed it, and I have personally experienced that you can be filled with the gift of the Holy Ghost. And because I not only have heard about it, but I've also seen it and experienced it, then we're not ashamed to get up and declare it to anybody who wants to know, yes, you can receive the gift of the Holy Ghost uh, speaking with other tongues. Amen. There's a lot of people that have, have read the Bible and they have heard people discuss the Bible and they may have studied the Bible in a class and they have broken down the Bible when it comes to speaking in other tongues, but they're not going to then leave the classroom and go out into the street and declare to someone, you can be filled with the gift of the Holy Ghost. Because there's something different when you see words. Amen. There's something powerful. Later we read this from John at the end of your Bible in Revelation 1. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a great voice 
So he hears behind him a great voice as of a trumpet saying, I am Alpha and Omega, the first and the last, and what thou seest, write in a book and send it unto the seven churches where in Asia and Ephesus and unto Smyrna and uh, Pergamos and unto uh, Thyatira and unto Sardis and unto Philadelphia and unto Laodicea. And I turned to see the voice that spoke with me and being turned, I saw seven golden candlesticks and in the midst of the seven candlesticks, one like unto the son of man, clothed with the garment down to the foot and girt about with paps with a golden girdle. His head and his hairs were like white, were white like wool as white as snow, and his eyes were as a flame of fire, and his feet like unto the fine brass, as if it burned in a furnace, and his voice up as the sound of many waters. Do you see what John is saying here? He said, I heard a voice, and then when I turned, I saw a lot of stuff. I saw some powerful stuff. When I heard that voice, I turned. That's a key element. That's a key element. I heard it but then I turned to see. That's a change of direction. It's a change. I really am trying hard not to preach, but it's just all there. <laughs> it's a total change of direction. It's a total change of perspective. He says, I heard this voice, and this voice was behind me, which means I may have been facing the wrong direction at the time. Anybody ever been there? I heard the voice, and it was behind me, and it said, I am Alpha, and I am Omega. I am the beginning. I am the end. It's God standing behind him saying, I'm telling you, I am God. And when he turns to see, he changes direction. He changes perspective, and he sees the candlesticks, and he sees the fire, and he sees one as of the Son of Man in the middle. I am Alpha and Omega, and he turns, and he sees Jesus. And the beginning and the end, and he turns and he sees, he sees Jesus. Oh, hallelujah, with the fire and all. And the countenance was as the sun shineth in the strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. And he laid his right hand upon me, saying unto me, Fear not, I am the first and the last. I am he that liveth and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. God can't die. So who is he seeing, this John the Revelator, getting his revelation of eternity in heaven and all of that? He's seeing Christ, the I am, hallelujah, the ever-present help. The man, the unchangeable God is sitting there, and he says, yes, I am who you think I am. Amen, I was alive, and I did die, but now I'm alive forevermore. Have the keys of hell and death. Write, write these things which thou hast seen. Not write the things which you heard. Write the things which you've seen. Because there's something powerful about hearing and seeing. Because he could have heard God, but never turned to see God. Hallelujah. God will talk to you all day long about what he wants to do in your life. He'll talk to you all day long about how he wants to bless you, how he wants to help you, how he wants to strengthen you, how he wants to make you an overcomer, how he can deliver. All, he'll, he'll put those things into your heart all day long. But at sometimes, at some point, you've got to turn and see exactly who it is and what he's got in mind. Oh, hallelujah. When God speaks to us, 
If we will turn to his word, he will reveal his will. I want you to write that down if you're taking notes. If you turn to his word, he reveals his will. His word is always going forth. His word is always going forth. You've got a Bible in your hands. You've got access to that word 24 hours a day. You've been in this place and this on Sunday mornings and Sunday nights and Wednesday nights. And maybe you come from other, other classes and you're part of other Bible studies. Whatever it is, the word is always going forth. But we have to turn to the word. We have to direct ourselves towards the word. We have to listen to what the word has to say. We have to be obedient to the word, submitted to the word. Because if we don't, it's just the word that we hear. He wants it to be the word that we hear and see. And when we turn to the word, he reveals his will. His word gets our attention. And when his word gets our attention, then revelation can come about in our lives. What did Amos begin to see? Now, even though he begins, it's very, I find it just really interesting the way he does this. He begins by mentioning Israel. He's like, look, God came to me. He got my attention. I turned to his word. He told me to go. He told me to prophesy and, and, and say these things that are concerning Israel, right? That's verse one still. That's what he says. So he does this, but then he's quickly switches and starts talking about all of these other nations. He doesn't talk about Israel at all for, for a while. So his name, Amos, it means burden bearer, by the way, if you're taking notes, which applies to most of the prophets. Their task, if you would, was heavy. It wasn't an easy thing to be called of God to go Stand in the streets of the synagogues and declare, thus saith the Lord. Amen. It wasn't an easy thing. And to be honest with you, I don't, it's, it wasn't intended to be easy. Because if it was intended to be easy, God would have just converted whoever the king was and made him the prophet. Because everybody listens to the king. But God chooses the foolish things to confine the wise, and so he finds a man that nobody knows named Amos or some shepherd on the side of a hill or some man that's out in the wilderness, and he says, I want you to come, right? That's how he works, isn't it? Why does he do that? Well, it's once you get the whole overview of the Bible, it kind of jumps off the pages at you. He does it because he works with people who know that they cannot do it without him. He chooses people who understand that they cannot fix the situation. They cannot save the nation. They cannot kill the giant. They cannot read the, the, the dream. They cannot pronounce the vision. They can't do any of that stuff unless God makes it so. 
This is why humility and submission to God are so invaluable if we want to be used of God in any form of ministry or any type of uh, uh, successful way in reaching our world. Because if we think we can do it on our own, he will let us try. And he will let us try, and he will let us try, and he will let us try, and he'll just keep letting us try until we either run ourselves ragged into the ground or we turn to him and say, God, guess what? I can't do this. Right? Amen. But that statement is not just a statement of our inability. It's also a statement of submission to God. I can't do this, but you can. I can do all things through Christ, right? Which strengthens me. And so here is this burden bearer. He's a contemporary. He's a, he, most people would say he's just a few years older than Isaiah and Hosea. He's at that same time period, and his call was to go to Israel and to basically call them out for where they were, how they were living, what they were doing. And he does it in an interesting way. I want you to think about this for, for a moment, that, that Amos is called to be a prophet to a prosperous nation. How many think that would make it harder? Yeah. Yeah. It's an interesting thing. If you've been to church for very long, you know that if you come here every week, week in, week out, you've been coming for years, then you know what I'm about to say is true, is there's a lot of people that show up to churches when things are falling apart. And we love them, help them, pray with them, teach them, get them connected, do everything we can, weep with them and laugh with them and rejoice with them. But for some time, some people, when things start going good, they quit showing up. They just quit showing up. So Amos is called to be a prophet to a prosperous nation. He carries a burden for a people that are in the height of their prosperity. And so it's a very challenging time to open the eyes of any group of people to their problems. He encircles, and this is real interesting to me. If you look at uh, Amos 1 and then you, verse 3, let's just read down here a little bit. And uh, we'll read actually uh, into chapter 2 a little bit. Just like absorb it while we're reading it, and you follow along uh, reading it in your Bibles or on the screen. Thus saith the Lord, for three transgressions of Damascus and for four, and that, that, you're going to see that little phrase a lot, and I'll explain that in a second. For three transgressions of Damascus and for four, I will not turn away the punishment thereof, because they have threshed Gilead with threshing instruments of iron. But I will send a fire into the house of Israel. That's another re repetitive phrase. A few months ago, we talked about studying the Bible. We talked about repetitive phrases and how that is significant when you see repetitive phrases in the Word of God and how those things should jump off the page to us. Uh, but I will send fire to the house of Haziel, which shall devour the palaces of Abinadad. I will break also the, the bar of Damascus and cut off the inhabitant from the plain of Avon. 
And him that holdeth the scepter from the house of Eden and the, the people of Syria shall go into captivity unto Ker, saith the Lord. Thus saith the Lord, verse 6 now, for three transgressions of Gaza and for four, I will not turn away the punishment thereof, because they carried away captive the whole captivity to deliver them up to Edom. But I will send a fire on the wall of Gaza, which shall devour the palaces thereof, and I will cut off all the inhabitants from Ashdod, and him that holdeth the scepter from Ashkelon, and I will turn mine head against Ekron, and, and the remnant of the Philistines shall perish, saith the Lord God. Thus saith the Lord. For three transgressions of Tyrus and for four, I will not turn away the punishment thereof because they delivered up the whole captivity to Edom and remembered not the brotherly covenant. But I will send a fire on the wall of Tyrus, which shall, be, uh, shall devour the palaces thereof. Thus saith the Lord, for three transgressions of Edom and for four, I will not turn away the punishment thereof because he did pursue his brother with the sword and did not cast off and did cast off all pity and his anger did tear uh, perpetually and he kept his wrath forever. But I will send a fire upon uh, Teman which shall devour the palaces of Bozrah. Thus saith the Lord, verse 13, for three transgressions and for the children of Ammon and for four, I will not turn away the punishment thereof because they have ripped up the women with child of Gilead and that they might enlarge their border. But I will kindle a fire in the wall of Reba and it shall devour the places thereof with shouting in the day of battle with the tempest in the day of the whirlwind and their king shall go into captivity and his princes together saith the Lord. Notice he's, he's not even talking about Israel. He's naming a bunch of nations. None of them. Are Israel. Let's just jump into two, chapter two. Thus saith the Lord, for three transgressions of, and of Moab, and for four, I will not turn away the punishment thereof, because he burned the bones of the king of Edom into lime, but I will send a fire upon Moab, and it shall devour the palaces Karath, and Moab shall die with turmoil, with shouting, and with the sound of the trumpet. And I will cut off the judge from the midst thereof, and I will slay all the princes thereof with him, saith the Lord. Thus saith the Lord, for three transgressions of Judah. And for four, okay, so, and he, did everybody see that? Now, this is what's interesting about Amos's approach. He says, I've been called to God, God said go. And I'm gonna speak to them the things concerning Israel. And then he begins to name Damascus, Gaza, Tyre, Edom, Ammon, Moab, and Judah. Now this is very interesting because if you had a map out of that Middle Eastern portion of the country, you had Israel there, and you were looking at Israel, and you had a map out of the time, you would see that he was naming nations, he was dealing with nations that completely encircle Israel. He's drawing a circle. Amos is prophesying about what God is going to do uh, to Tyre, what God is going to do to Moab, what God is going to do to Gaza, what God is going, and he's, he's, he's making this circle around Israel like a, like a bullseye, like, a, like he's just making, he's closing it in with these nations as if to narrowed down to the epicenter of the problem because Israel is his chosen people. Israel is the ones that have had all of the, the history 
and everything that God has done with them. And now they're the ones living in idolatry, and they're the ones that are doing all these things. And so he, he narrows it down. He puts a bullseye on them as the culprit, hear me now, as the culprit of who has truly angered the Lord. Amos is not of the ten tribes of Israel. He is in Tekoa, is in Judah. And he comes crossing their division. He comes in to Israel and he starts prophesying against all of its neighbors. Now, why does God even do that to begin with? There were prophets in Israel. Right? There were prophets in Israel. There were a lot of people in Israel. There was a lot of people that could be used. Why does he have to go to Judah, to Tekoa, to find Amos? The Bible tells us it was very simple, that God did this because they were refusing to listen to the prophets that lived amongst them. Now, this is, this is kind of a life principle. This would be a good thing to find a way to write this down. It may amaze us that there was prophets there, but God brought, brings in a prophet from a, 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 a far-off place. But it really shouldn't, because if we can bring it, jump it into the New Testament, when Jesus is speaking in Matthew 13, he says, and when, it says of him, and when he was come into his own country, he taught them in their synagogue insomuch that they were astonished and said, where has this man this wisdom and these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother Mary? And his brother James and Joseph and Simon and Judas and his sisters, are they not all like with us? Don't they all live here in our town? Don't we know these people? Didn't we see them growing up? And, 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 and which does this man have all of these things? How does he have this power? How does he have this authority? How does he get this? And because he had all of this, but because they thought they knew him, they were offended in him. But Jesus says, a prophet is not without honor. Prophets have honor, but where don't they have honor? He says, save in their own country. You see, Jesus understood humanity, and the God of the Old Testament understood humanity, and he understands what he's working with. And so he knows, I've given them prophets of their own people in their own nation. I've given them prophets where they are. But they're not listening to those prophets. And in the case of Jesus, the Bible says that he left and he did not many mighty works there. Because what did Jesus call it? He called it unbelief. He called it unbelief when they wouldn't listen to the prophet that was amongst them. He called it unbelief. There's something about our sinful nature that can resist the, the close voice of truth, but be more open to the stranger's voice 
that is from far away. What is this power of far away? Have you ever wondered that? Why is it such a powerful thing that someone can be from somewhere else? They come from far away, and so we're like, oh, really? What do you think I should do with my life? They just live in a different geographical location, but because it's not where we live, we think that maybe somehow that means there's wisdom attached to it, power attached to it, authority attached to it, but it doesn't. Jesus calls it unbelief. The, the preacher or the teacher on the television set, the guy we search up on YouTube or the woman that we watch on, on YouTube channel who's preaching or teaching or bringing the word of God about in our life. And we just kind of accept it. Oh, that's good. Oh, that's powerful. That's exactly what I needed. But it's like, if you went to their church every Sunday, would you feel the same way? Do you ever wonder these types of things? Do the people that are sitting in their congregations get on YouTube to watch other people? Ultimately, the struggle is, is that the people that God puts into our lives where we are, we can ignore and be open and listening to voices from somewhere else. The truth of the matter is, is people need, we need truth however we can get it. I'm not against preaching and teaching, YouTube and whatever. If they've got truth, we need it wherever we can get it. But it can, hear me now, it can set us up for a fall if we're not careful about the voices in our lives. If the only thing that they have to be is someone else. Oh, hallelujah. Now I'm pastoring a little bit. If all they have to be is someone else for us to accept what they say, then we're, we can really get messed up. Because pastor can tell us something, our friends can tell us something, the family who loves us can tell us something, everybody can be telling us something that we need to do or stop doing, but all we got to do is find one other voice that says we're okay. And we're living in an era that is, is made that so much easier. Because if everybody, if my pastor says, you're wrong, Jeremy, you're wrong, that's wrong thinking. If my wife says, babe, you're wrong, we've been married for 20 years, listen to me. If my in-laws say, you're wrong. If my brothers call me up, say, you're wrong. If, if the elders in the church say, you're wrong, I could just get on Facebook. And throw it out there. And I'm not going to have to wait but a couple minutes. And somebody's going to say, I think you're right. And I think all those other people, they just don't like you. And they're just jealous of you. And they're just... And some person that I have no idea who they are 
can just say whatever they want to say. What is this power of other unknown people? I mean, no, we need, we, we need the word of God in our lives today. We need the word of God in our lives. And so God tried to help them. Look at chapter 2, verse 11 and 12. What, what, is, what does he say? He says, I raised up, we're in Amos 2, I raised up of your, son, of your sons for prophets and of your young men for Nazarites. I, I raised them up. Is, is it not even thus, O you children of Israel? Didn't I do that? But you gave the Nazarites wine to drink, which means you caused the Nazarites who had a commitment to me and a level of a lifestyle that was committed to me, you provided them a stumbling block and you, you messed that all up. You gave them wine to drink and you commanded the prophets saying, prophesy not. He says, Israel, Amos, Israel, didn't, didn't God give us voices of truth? Yes, he did. But what did we do with them? Well, we corrupted them. And we told them not to speak. It should set off alarms in our spirit when we find ourselves saying or thinking, prophesy not. It ought to cause sirens to go off inside of us if we start shutting down voices of truth in our lives. If God's word is shut up in our lives, we are in grave danger. In our flesh, we don't like to be told to stop anything we are doing or anything we enjoy doing. We don't want somebody to tell us to stop, right? When we're kids, we don't like it. When we're teenagers, we don't like it. When we're young adults, we don't like it. When we're old, we don't like it. Nobody likes you to look them in the eye and say, stop it. What should I do? Just stop it. Stop. We don't like that. We don't, we don't like it. And yet, and yet, we, we are told in big, bold letters with a bright red background multiple times a day to stop. Aren't we? Driving. Ooh, stop. Says stop. I better stop. We don't get out and yell at the sign. We don't get out and say, I don't know who you think you are. I know when to stop. I know how to stop. No, the sign says stop, we stop. Why? Because the purpose of the sign is to take a moment and observe. Right? Pause and look. That's the purpose so that we don't just get demolished when we drive through the intersection. <laughs> and so, we literally obey stop signs so that we literally won't die. The point is not just to stop and to look, but it's to observe, it's to take notice. And this is often what God's stop is trying to get us to do. This is why a prophet is sent from Tekoa to say, stop, 
This is why a voice comes into our life and says, stop, observe, see what is going on. And so he sends him a man, an unknown man. And he says, stop. And these nations around them all have their own issues. And really, when you begin to look at each of these nations, and he, he says something specific about each one of those nations, uh, specifically, they all had some very general things in common. He says for three, uh, even four, I'll get to that in a second, they, they were all doing some of the same things, but all of them had in a specific way, they had been uh, uh, a thorn in the flesh, if you will, to Israel. They had all hurt Israel somehow, taken from Israel, manipulated Israel, hurt Israel. In their history, at some point, the Bible declares they have all been grieving thorns to Israel. And so to each, Amos begins, thus saith the Lord. They may not serve him. This is important to catch this, by the way. He's going, this is all about Israel still, but he's talking about all these other nations, and he's saying that this is what they've done, and what's, what's going to happen to them, the fire's going to come, and he says, thus saith the Lord. So it doesn't matter that they don't serve him as Lord. He is still their Lord all the same. It doesn't matter that Tyre doesn't, that, that they don't recognize him as God. Are you catching what I'm saying? It, 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 matters, it matters not at all that these places like Moab and Gaza and Judah, or, or Gaza, it, it doesn't matter at all that they don't recognize him as their God. He is their God, whether they like it or not. He's our God, whether we like it or not, because he's God all by himself. And so he points out to them, thus saith the Lord. And we have this repeated verse, and I'm just gonna go quickly here. Thus saith the Lord, for three transgressions of Damascus, and for four, I will not turn away the punishment of Israel. Now this is what he's, this repeated phrase means, that this is not a number that is specific, but it's used to convey an understanding. What he's saying is, he's saying is, Look, because you've crossed the line, because you've gone too far, that's what he's saying. He's saying for three transgressions, yea, for four. He's like, this isn't the first time you've done this. I've, I've withheld my, my judgment for a long time. I've withheld my fire for a long time. I haven't poured out any punishment on you, even though you deserved it years and years and years ago. And you've been doing this. You've been living blatantly, sinfully against me all of this time. So that's what yea, three, yea, even four means. He, each of these nations had more than enough sins to warrant judgment coming to them and for it to be applied. Now, this is Old Testament, remember. All were guilty of much of the same. He mentions their specific individual sins as well. And then he notices these nations, amen, I'll say this, these people are not God's chosen people in the understanding of the historical context of the Old Testament, in the understanding of how God interacted with them, if you will, but yet they are still God's people because even in the Old Testament, God's eyes were on all of his creation, not just Israel. 
We, we, we can get a little bit messed up in our thinking with that because it follows the nation of Israel and God has this relationship with the nation of Israel and that is all very powerful and very important and still very important today. But all of those people that existed in other nations were all created by God. Amen? You know, all created by God. And so thus he repeated that phrase and he repeats another phrase that we find the first time in Amos 1 and 4. But I will send a fire. And this fire here is a, is a war. This is the declaration of war. Each of them were ultimately destroyed by another nation. So when he says, I will send the fire, this is not specifically about a physical fire that's going to fall and devour them. That fire is a nation that is going to rise up from some far off place and come and destroy them. And it does. Eventually, they all are destroyed. And then we get to the ten tribes and the main subject of Amos' prophecies, and he begins with the blatantly obvious Thus saith the Lord, for three transgressions of Israel, and for four I will not turn away the punishment thereof, because they sold the righteous for silver and the poor for a pair of shoes. Righteousness, right, and justice. Remember those words? Everybody with me? Can you just like a few more minutes? Righteousness and justice. Righteousness had been corrupted through, the, through bribery. Their judges could be bought and not difficult, easily bought, putting them in direct disobedience to Deuteronomy 16 and 19. Thou shalt not wrest judgment, thou shalt not respect persons, neither take a gift, for a gift doth blind the eyes of the wise and pervert the words of the, the, words of the righteous. So Deuteronomy set it up that if you're going to be a judge, if you're going to be a person making decisions over people, you cannot allow them to bribe you. They cannot pay for anything. They cannot gift you anything that is going to cause you to change. They cannot manipulate justice. And you cannot be someone who is a respecter of persons because they're not better just because they can pay you more money. They're not better just because they can empower you somehow. They're not better. And so he says you cannot do this in Deuteronomy, but it's exactly what they are doing, and Amos calls them out on it. In fact, it says they sold the righteous for silver and the poor for a pair of shoes. And that is a very interesting statement that Amos makes because when it says that the poor were sold for a pair of shoes, uh, that pair of shoes means wooden-bottomed sandals that were secured with leather straps. Uh, the, specifically, they were less valuable than what we would even consider as shoes. This is the very base footwear that existed. This is the, the poorest form of footwear that a person could make and wear on their feet. And Amos declares about them at their time that they were selling the righteous for silver and the poor they were selling out for a pair of shoes. So they're living, now catch this, now catch the anger of God, why this would anger him so much. They are living in a time of financial prosperity. They're living at the zenith of the highlight of their prosper nation. And this was not done when they were selling out people, when they were taking bribes and they were corrupting justice and when they were ruling against righteous people in favor of unrighteous people. It wasn't done because they needed money. It wasn't done 
because they were hungry. It wasn't done because the judges hadn't eaten in months. It wasn't done because they were so desperate and they were just trying to survive for their family. No, they were at the richest point in their history. These people had everything that they wanted and they would still sell out the poorest people among them for a measly little nothing. They would just, you could just bribe them with anything. There was a total lack, and this is where you begin to see the anger of God, why it would rise up against them, and why Amos would be consent. There was a total lack of, uh, of, of shame. There, there was a perversion of purpose. Injustice, the Bible. He, he goes on and he says there's injustice. He says you're, you're, you got incestuous relationships. He says there, there's a complete oppression of the poor. And these are all the first sins that Amos charges them with. These are the blatant sins that he calls them out for. Direct affronts to the righteousness of God. And as God often did, and I close, as God often did, he now reminds Israel of what he has done for them. And I know, I know this is my last point and we're running out of time, but I need you to hear me, okay? This is important. This is what Amos is told to say. Yet destroyed I the Amorites before them, whose height was like the height of the cedars, and, and he was strong as the oaks. Yet I destroyed this fruit from above and his roots from beneath, and I brought them out as I also I brought you out from the land of Egypt and led you 40 years through the wilderness to possess the land of the Amorites, he says there was the Amorites, they were powerful people in the land of Canaan. And by mentioning the Amorites, he's pretty much mentioning the whole land of Canaan. Every nation that they conquered in Canaan. He mentions Amorites, the most powerful ones. And he says, he says I, I tore down the Amorite nation. I brought you out of Egypt, set you free. I kept you in the wilderness, let you cross over a Red Sea, cross over a Jordan River, and brought you to a place where there's, there's houses you didn't build, vineyards you didn't plant, a land flowing with milk and honey. I did all of that. I conquered your enemies. I did all of those things. I raised up your sons for prophets and for your young men for Nazarites. And he says, I did all that. And then Amos says, he says, tell him this. Is that not right? Did I not do that? Oh, ye children of Israel, didn't I do that? Didn't I do that? Didn't, wasn't I the one that brought you out? 400 years in bondage, wasn't I the one that brought the Pharaoh down? Wasn't I the one that brought the plagues? Didn't I do that for you? Yes. Didn't I bring you to the wilderness? Did I provide you the water from a rock? Yes. I bring manna from heaven? Yes. The quail when you begged for it? Yes. Didn't I do all of those things? How often does God have to remind us of what he has done for us? I want you to that question to be in your mind. How often does he have to remind us of what he did for us in the past, what he's done for us already? He's not a God of condemnation. He's not a God of guilt. He's not a God of shame. His majesty does not need to stoop to manipulation. So he doesn't remind us of our past and what he's done for us to try to manipulate us into serving him. But he will remind us if need be. He's not a, really a big fan of talking about the past. He's not a big fan of talking about when we were in bondage. He's not a big fan of re reminding everybody how you could have got through a whole lot quicker, but uh, you had to roam in the wilderness for 40 years because you wouldn't listen to me. He doesn't want to talk about that, but he will talk about that 
He will bring it up. And this is the last thing. He says that our testimony in Revelation 12 can be used by us to overcome the devil. That they overcame him by the blood of the lamb, and by the word of their testimony, and they loved not their lives unto the death. And so we love that scripture. We can overcome him by the blood of the lamb, by the word of our testimony. We have power in our testimony. You have power in telling people what God has done for you. But while we can use it as a weapon to overcome the enemy, as a power, God will also use it as a rebuke to overcome our flesh. When he says, is it not even thus, O children of Israel? Didn't I do this and this and this and this and this? And so the question is, how often not do we use our testimony to overcome our enemy, but how often does God have to remind us of our testimony to point out that we're not serving him like we should be? Amos is trying to open their eyes, and the book of Amos wants our eyes to be open. That judgment still awaits those who worship at their shrines but ignore the Almighty God. That judgment still awaits those. And that God is still trying to remind us, look what I've done for you. Let's stand together. Is it not so? How many would say, yes, Lord, it is so? You brought me out of darkness into your marvelous light. You delivered me. You set me free. Thank you for listening to our podcast this week. We hope you enjoyed this message. Remember, if you would like to find out more information about our church or to contact us, please go online at connectpointupc.com. And also, don't forget to subscribe in your podcast app so you will be automatically notified of new episodes. Thank you, and we hope you have a great week.